Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Uh, So glad to be uh, here this morning. I want to say one of the things I'm noticing as I travel around the world is that uh, God's people are saying God is good all the time. And this morning I want you to practice that with me. I'm going to say God is good and you say all the time. And I say all the time and you say God is good. Uh, That's so simple. Uh, uh, So let's do that. God is good all the time. time. Now please do it as if you had breakfast this morning. Okay, God is good. All the time? time. Uh, Since 9-11, I've added another line to that wonderful refrain that we see around the world, that God is not only good, but He's also great. If He's not great, He's not good enough. So this morning, we want you to learn the second line. God is great? All the time? time. Now let's put the two uh, sentences together. God is good? All All the time? God is great all the time. time. Thank you. Keep those two truths together because that's important. God is good and great all the time. And he loves us all the more. One of God's favorite cities in the world, I say, is Seoul, Korea. Why do I say it's one of God's favorite cities? Simply because it is the home of some of the largest churches in the world. The largest church in the world is about 860,000 people. Now, obviously, they don't have a sanctuary that fits 860,000 people, but friends, uh, they run 14 services over two weeks. Now, uh, and it's one of the few uh, churches in the world you need to have uh, what we call ushers here. I call them Christian cops uh, because they're dressed in white and make sure 54,000 people walk out, uh, ushered out, and so that they can bring another 54,000 in uh, for the next service. But friends, uh, it's not only the home of the largest church in the world, it's also home of the largest Presbyterian church in the world. It's the home of the largest uh, Methodist church in the world. There are more believing Methodists in that one Methodist church than all the believing Methodists in UK where Methodism was born. Friends, science is relative. I was speaking at a pastor's conference. There were 2,700 pastors at this conference in Seoul. And, uh, and, and when I arrived, arrived at this conference, somebody said to me, uh, somebody said to me, uh, you know, here's the itinerary. You're not only speaking at this conference. You know that you're speaking at a church. And so I had this itinerary of all my speaking time. There were other speakers as well. Uh, so uh, the conference started on Monday night uh, and uh, Tuesday, Uh, an individual came up to me and said, I'm Pastor Kim. He says, you are preaching in my church on Sunday. I'm so glad. My church is small, but Jesus must make it big. So I didn't want to say yes right away because uh, you can promise something that you cannot deliver. So I took out my sheet and checked it out. Are you, this is the church? Yes, this is Pastor Kim because there are a lot of Kims in Korea. (laughs) So is this, yes. I said, then I'm, I'm happy to come. On Wednesday, I saw him. Uh, he was two persons ahead of me at lunch line. 
He breaks the lunch and comes and says, I'm Pastor Kim. I'm so happy you're coming to my church on Sunday. My church is small, but Jesus must make it big. Thursday, he sees me across the hall, runs to me and says, I'm Pastor Kim. I'm happy you're coming to my church on Sunday. My church is small, but Jesus must make it big. Thank God I didn't see him on Friday. <laughs> but on Saturday comes to me and said, I'm Pastor Kim. I'm so happy you're coming to preach in my church tomorrow. My church is small, but Jesus must make it big. Then he adds, I'll come and pick you up a quarter to eight. Now when, I, when he comes a quarter to eight, sure enough he's there. As I crawl in the sky, he says, I'm Pastor Kim. I'm so happy you're coming to preach in my church this morning. My church is small, but Jesus must make it big. I want to tell you, uh, when I first heard that line, my church is small, Jesus must be big, I thought, oh, you know, uh, that's being humble. Second day, I thought, oh, it must be really small. So I started for Asian Standard 300, you know, Korea, uh, uh, 300, small. Uh, but by the time Saturday came, I thought, this must be really small. <laughs> so, so here we are, driving through Seoul, heading towards this, Heading towards this, suddenly we see this huge church with a lot of cars already parked there. And, and then I thought, oh, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. He is a church planting pastor. He is gathering a group of people and developing leadership in some fellowship hall. This church is going to launch it, and that's why this church is uh, this small. But friends, when I walked into study, I realized this is bigger than I thought. Because you could have fitted 80 people in his study, in his office. Then everything changed for me as we walked out of the, of the door, walked in. I'm sitting in front of 6,700 people. And then he says, as he introduces me, he says, I'm so happy Pastor Thomas is here. Pastor Thomas, our church is small, but Jesus must make it big. Hey, friends, this pastor has got the right perspective. They don't decide the size of the church by the number of people inside. They decide the size of the church by the number of people still outside. And friends, one of the things that we need to really change around in this continent is we have peanut-sized visions. We need to start believing that God is a God who wants to reach out and touch people. And so what is the secret of this, uh, this, uh, the growing church in South Korea? Friends, the secret is they have, they have understood and know how to use the God's secret weapon of prayer. There are four reasons why I say it's God's secret weapon. And it's, uh, number one, it's a weapon that can be used by any Christian. The moment you and I came to Christ, whether it was two, two months ago or 22 years ago, it doesn't matter. The moment you came to Christ, you were given the spiritual uh, equipment, part of the spiritual equipment, the weapon of prayer. You know, you may go for seminars and learn more about prayer. You can read books and learn about prayer. But the access to the throne room of God was given to you the day you received Jesus Christ. 
The day you received Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and quickened you inside and made you alive in Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that connects you to the throne room of God. So every believer, I don't have to know who you are. I don't know, I have to know how old you have been in Christ. If this morning you say you are a believer in Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you at this very moment, you have access to the throne room of God. You don't have to be a bishop, you don't have to be a pastor or an elder. Every believer, every believer, the youngest one right here, every believer has access it's a weapon that can be used by any Christian. I want you to turn around and tell somebody, you have that weapon. Every believer, if you're a believer this morning, you can use this weapon. The problem is we may not be using it. We keep it in the upper shelves of our life and we do not know what it can do for us. Secondly, friends, it's a weapon that can be used at any time. And, you know, as a, as a Christian, as part of a disciplined Christian life, you may have set times for prayer. But friends, that's not the only times uh, that, uh, that you can pray. You can pray at any time. God is accessible to us 24-7. He is available. He's never too busy there's no call waiting, no voicemail, no time is he not available to us. He can, it's a weapon can be used at any time. Thirdly, friends, he is a weapon that can be used from any place in the universe. Again, as part of your disciplined Christian life, you may have certain places where it's set aside to, for you to pray. Not because the place is sacred, but you make it sacred because you spend time in prayer. But friends, uh, so it's good because it conditions you. Uh, when you go to that place, you know that's the reason you are there. You know, so you go to the kitchen, you either uh, raid somebody else, what somebody else has cooked, or you cook so that somebody uh, you can eat and somebody else can eat. So uh, there is a place. It conditions us. It helps us. So, it, so it's a weapon. Uh, it's a weapon, can, but it can be used any place in the universe. Uh, you can. You can, uh, you can use this weapon while you're walking. You can use your weapon while you're washing dishes. You can use this weapon any place. You can use this weapon in a crowded place. You can use the, uh, this weapon in a solitary place. You can, uh, you can even use this weapon while, while uh, driving if you keep your eyes open. But you can use this weapon even on hospital beds. You know, when you're very sick, very ill, Sometimes it's not possible to read. But friends, this weapon can be used right there. You can commune with God. You can access Him. Friends, those who have been thrown in prison testify. Uh, sometimes they're removed. Uh, a fellowship is removed from them. Any scriptures are removed from them. But friends, nobody can take the secret of weapon of prayer from any Christian. No government can do that. It's a secret weapon God has given to us. But fourthly, friends, it's a weapon that can release God's power into the affairs of humans. Let me tell you one very common problem in prayer. A common problem in prayer that you and I perhaps go through is when we go to God in prayer, we forget whom we are addressing. And you may say, what do you mean? You know, we forget 
the magnitude of the person that we are approaching. We often go to God thinking he's just a little more powerful than you are. But friends, you need to understand God is almighty. We sang this this morning. God is all, has full knowledge. God has total authority. You are approaching the most important VIP in the universe. When we approach God, can you imagine this? That you and I have access to the most important VIP in the universe. You know, there are some important individuals in, this, in the city or this county, but friends, you want to try to make an appointment with them. Uh, usually, if you uh, call them, they will usually say, some secretary will say, can somebody else help you? Or let me get somebody else to help you. You see, to see the mayor, to see the governor, to see somebody important, it's very difficult. And if you really convince that person that you need to see him or her, it's going to be several months later. But friends, you and I have access to the most powerful, the most knowledgeable, the, most, uh, the person with the most authority in the world. You and I have access to him from any place at any time as a believer in Christ. We have access to him, but we also know God can overrule anything and any situation. But we do not approach God that way. Friends, we need to go. We need to go to God, believing that he he is available to us, and he can release powers. He can release power and change situations, change nations, change the direction of a, of a certain situation in your family or the church or whatever, God can rule and God or can overrule. Let's quickly go to Scripture. Go to, uh, I want you to go to Acts chapter 12. There are many, many incidents I could pick up, but I'm going to pick up Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read quickly uh, the first five verses. Uh, you may be familiar to this. As you go to Acts chapter 12, you need to know this situation takes place 13 years, 12 to 13 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 12, it says, Now about the time Herod the king had hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Friends, uh, uh, this is, if you compare biblical history with secular history, this is what took place. King Herod Agrippa I was summoned by Rome. Why was he summoned by Rome? Because the easternmost part of the Roman Empire, which was Palestine, was the most troublesome spot to the, to, uh, the emperor at Rome. Uh, there was a lot of strife. There was a civil strife. There were religious groups. There were uh, clamoring for power. And, there was, uh, and, and, and it was a headache to Rome. 
So uh, the emperor said to, uh, said to Herod Agrippa I, I want you to come to Rome. He came, back, he came to Rome and he told uh, Herod Agrippa the, the first this. I want you to go back and make sure there is peace in the land. I want you to know I, have the, I will back you up. Anybody going against you will be crushed. Herod Agrippa the first goes returns to Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, friends, he, uh, he, he, he knows what he's coming back to. What, what was one of the major problems? The uh, one major problem was the, 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 new, uh, the new movement called the church. The Christian movement was growing, growing in strength day by day. More and more people were leaving Jewish synagogues and worship places and starting to follow the, follow the teachings of Christ. They were followers of Christ. And friends, there was tension. The tension was the majority were afraid of what was taking place and they were not happy. Friends, if you want to kill a movement, you go after leadership. It's a universal fact. You want to kill a movement, you go after leadership. And that's exactly what King Agrippa I did. What did he do? He had James executed. And the moment James was executed, friends, I'll tell you, there was a new hope among the Jews that the Gallipol rating showed. Yes, we have now finally political clout. We have access. The top person in this country is going to be for us. And friends, I will tell you, uh, there was great excitement. But I want to also tell you that some of his advisors must have come to King Agrippa the first and said, King Agrippa, I know you're excited about what the polls are showing. I know you, you are becoming more popular. But I, one thing you need to know, that just because James has been executed doesn't guarantee this movement will be killed. There is another person, Peter. And don't undermine the fact that Peter comes from the hick country of Galilee. Don't undermine the fact he's just a fisherman. He doesn't have degrees to his name. He's not a great scholar. But I want to tell you, he's the leader of this movement. When he speaks, his people follow. And if Peter is not got rid of, this movement will never die. So, so, so King Agrippa I decided to arrest Peter. I want you to look at verse 3 and notice when does he arrest Peter. Look at verse 3. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was now during the days of unleavened bread. Hey friends, the days of unleavened bread, friends, is one of the most important festivals of the Jewish calendar. And friends, there were people coming from every part. If you were a Jew and you were healthy and you could afford it, your goal is to get to Jerusalem at one of these uh, three uh, major festivals. And I want to tell you, thousands and thousands of Jews would come and camp inside and outside of Jerusalem because of this festival. Friends, it was the mo one of the most media, best media blitz that he could do. He knew if he arrests Peter... The word will get out, not only across Palestine, but the word will get out to the whole Jewish world that Judaism is saved. Peter is arrested. You can almost see people talking to one another. Did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? Guess what? Peter is in prison. If James was killed, Peter has no chance. No chance at all. But friends, I want you to know 
What is the response of the church? What is the response of the church? This is amazing to me. What is the response of the church? The response of the church was not to have a demonstration in front of King Herod's palace with placards and say, we have equal rights. The response of the church was not to have a petition signing campaign. Not that those two things are wrong, but friends, they were secondary. The amazing thing for me is this infant church, 13 years after it was born, this infant church knew how to keep first things first. Not that demonstration is wrong, a petition or some other thing is wrong, but they knew we pick up the first things first. And they decided to pick up the weapon of prayer. This morning I want you to walk out of this place knowing a four keys of effective praying. Number one, they were united in prayer. Number one, they were united in prayer. Uh, friends, I must confess, uh, after my seminary training and even a few years in the ministry, public ministry, uh, if you had asked me who prayed for Peter, I would have given you the answer, the cell group in John Mark's place. But friends, I'm wrong. Who prayed for Peter? Who prayed for Peter? Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. By this time, by the most minimum estimation, there were eight to 11,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem. But friends, they did not have the freedom to gather together. They did not have the freedom to gather together for corporate prayer. But they were geographically distributed. They were distributed in living rooms and, and uh, terraces and backyards. But friends, they were united in prayer. Why were they united in prayer? Because the spirit of prayer is the Holy Spirit. Uh, they were united in the spirit in prayer. Uh, in prayer. And, and friends, it's always great to be part of some huge prayer meeting that I've been part of. It's, it's great. There's something great that happens once in a while when you get to be with the whole group of people who spend several hours in prayer and praise. There's something that does, something does, uh, hits you. Uh, you. You get strengthened as you look at people all praying. It's wonderful to be part of. I've been part of the largest one with 300,000 outside Nairobi. Out in the, in the hot sun. Out in the hot sun. Uh, just a few of us who were leading the prayer meeting. Uh, we were under a little bit of shade and a few trees. But the rest of them, 300,000 gathered to pray for their nation. They to be part of 100,000 people at the Olympic Stadium uh, in Seoul. Uh, great to be part of another prayer meeting at the Sky Dome uh, in, in Toronto. It's great. It's great to be there. But friends, that's, that's, you do it when you can. And when there's one of those, you need to be part of that. It's something that will happen to you. As you see hundreds of Christians joining hearts and minds and their wills together to cry out to God. But friends, just because you cannot do that doesn't mean you cannot be united in prayer. And as you're moving into this 50-day uh, campaign, you know, you are, you, are, you are united by the Spirit of God as you pray. You're united. You may be sitting uh, in different houses, homes, and praying, but you need to know there's unity because the unity comes from the Holy Spirit. 
Just because you are in one place doesn't guarantee unity. I've been to prayer meetings, and perhaps you have been, but I've been to prayer meetings where the same 22 people show up. They all sit in the same place, and you know what the uh, prayer uh, is going to go. You know who's going to start, who's going to do, and you even know the words they're going to use. Just because you're in one place doesn't guarantee prayer, uh, unity in prayer. Because if those who have gathered don't have right relationship with, with God or right relationship with each other, the Holy Spirit cannot take that prayer to the throne room of God. Why? Not because the Holy Spirit leaves the prayer meeting, but the Holy Spirit withdraws from that circle. He he's grieved. Why is he grieved? Because there's envy, there's strife, uh, there's jealousy, there's pride, there's unforgiveness, unforg- uh, and the Holy Spirit withdraws. He doesn't leave. He withdraws. He's, he's grieving. He's a, he's a person. He is grieving of the so-called superficial unity because they're in one place. And there is brokenness. And friends, that prayer meeting ends up to be a dead prayer meeting. What's worse than one dead prayer meeting? Two dead prayer meetings. And it's amazing. All across this continent, there are prayer meetings that take place. They're basically dead prayer meetings, going through the ritual, going through the religious thing. And they are so proud they came for the prayer meeting. And they are thinking, oh, Keith didn't come. Jeff didn't come. Oh, you know, I'm more spiritual. Hey, friends, it's better for you to watch reruns of Dukes of Hazzard then go for such a prayer meeting. Because that prayer is going nowhere. And you're fooling yourself. Friends, if you do not want to be right with God and people, don't show up at a prayer meeting. You know why? Because you become a prayer meeting killer. You didn't know you were a murderer. Don't be a prayer meeting killer. But if you go to a prayer meeting, you better be right with God and with each other and be united because then the Holy Spirit is going to take that prayer, that united prayer, the things that you agree upon and take it to the throne room of God. Secondly, friends, the second key is they were united in prayer. Secondly, they were focused in prayer. You know, I go to many, uh, several prayer meetings all over the last 35 years of ministry. I've been in several places and I, you can go to the prayer meeting and the person who calls the prayer meeting has no focus. Friends, you need to have focus. I'm, I'm not saying there could only be one, but the person who leads the prayer meeting needs to have at least one thing you are focusing on. Don't wait for the prayer request to surface alone. You better call the prayer meeting with focus. At least one, maybe three, doesn't matter. But you need to have focus. Friends, this prayer meeting, uh, there were many needs in the church. If you look at the church, uh, church and study book of Acts, you find many needs in the church. But I want to tell you, they were specifically focused on Peter. They were specifically focused on Peter. Uh, uh, thirdly, friends, they were earnest in their prayer. Some of your translations will say earnest. Some of your translations will use the word fervently. Uh, They're the same word. Uh, what does the word earnestly and fervently mean? It means this. This, uh, this is the literal meaning of this word. They were stretched flat right out. 
How did the average Jew pray? The average Jew prayed did not kneel. The Jew pray, the Jew prays uh, standing up. He moves his body. You can see it on the wailing wall as uh, on television screens. They pray with intensity. They pray. We all pray differently, and uh, and they pray with intensity. But they're But friends, what does it say? They they were stretched flat right out. Same word that's used for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as the uh, as the shadow of the cross was becoming darker and darker on his life. Jesus withdrew into Gethsemane, and this is what he says, being in agony, Luke 22 verse 44, being in agony, he was praying very earnestly or very fervently. If you were a loving parent, and you had a three-year-old child who is sick, and finally, you've been going to the doctor, and finally they say, admit the child, and you admit the child, and then uh, they do a battery of tests and everything, and the thing gets worse, and finally the doctor pulls you into his office, and he says to you, I want to tell you, we have done everything medical science can do. We do not know which direction it will go. The next 24 to 36 hours will decide which direction it will go. And friends, if you're a loving father or mother, there'll be a weakness that will come from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You feel like collapsing. You feel like collapsing. Why? Because you're desperate. The medical science have brought this person, uh, this child, uh, or medical science cannot do anything. There is a desperation. Friends, that is the scene that you see in that word. They were stretched flat right out. Desperate. Why are they desperate? The leadership of the church has been challenged. James is executed. Peter is in prison. The spokesman of the church is in peril. And they were desperate before God. You know, friends, I want to say, when I travel the world, in many other parts of people, I sense a more sense of desperation for the lost. I don't see it here. In fact, in fact, in the, in the uh, nearly 40 years I've been here, it has evaporated. Desperation has evaporated. I'm not trying to say you have to be always emotional. But friends, there needs to be a desperation to see lost people come to Christ. There needs to be a desperation for God to intervene wherever you are. Uh, you know, it's not just lostness issue. Any issue, there needs to be intensity of desperation, crying out to God. For God to intervene and let this power roll. They prayed earnestly. Fourthly and lastly, they shared the victories in their, of their prayer. I do, I do not want to, and that's given in Acts, uh, Acts 12 verses 12 to 17. Uh, so many of you know the story, but let me, for the interest of time, uh, Peter was miraculously uh, released. Uh, God intervened. The angel of the Lord comes. And you know, when I first uh, really started looking at this passage of scripture, uh, you know, it says, man, Peter must be sleepwalking. Uh, some of you know what sleepwalking is. I, I went to a boarding school, and in that boarding school uh, of several hundred students, uh, those of us who were in the upper classes were allowed to, you know, they sort of graduated. 
So when you're grade one, grade two, grade three, you go to bed earlier, and then one hour later, uh, the earlier, the older students, and then, of course, those of us who are mighty seniors, uh, grade 10 and 12 to 12, uh, we, we could sit up. But it, the understanding was you have more homework to do, and therefore you need to sit up. And, but when we are sitting and studying, uh, we many times, and sometimes talking, uh, 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 they, uh, you'll see one of the guys who went to bed earlier will come walking down, sleepwalking. Now, I've seen so many of them, I could write a textbook on sleepwalking, uh, but uh, because there are two general kinds of sleepwalkers. One kind of sleepwalkers, uh, you, when, they, they can, when they're sleepwalking, they can do amazing things, right? They can walk down banisters, you know, they can walk down on the banister, totally balanced, and you can't, they won't do it next day, but they can do it uh, tonight. And here they're banished, they're walking down, and you feel so concerned about them. But friends, you don't disturb, you don't talk, don't make noise. Uh, let them do their thing, and they'll be safe. Then there's another kind of sleepwalkers. You can talk to them. And they reply. And so this, this, evening, uh, this evening, here was a sleepwalker coming down. Alec, Alex walks down. He walks down. He's got a pillow and his blanket. He's, he's, we know this guy. Uh, that he's one of these guys we can talk to. So, I, so he came down and he said, Alec, uh, why, uh, what are you doing? I don't know. Hey, you obviously don't like your pillow and your blanket, uh, right? Yeah. Okay, let's get rid of it. So we opened the back door. We went down. Uh, there's a seawall. And we helped him throw the pillow first and say goodbye uh, to Indonesia, it goes. Uh, then we threw uh, the blanket. And then we walked him back, ushered him back to his bed without pillow. He slept early morning. He was wondering where the pillow and the blanket was. We never told him. Uh, <laughs> and if he shows up in heaven, I'll confess. Hey, friends. Peter was like sleepwalking. He was just following instructions. When does he come to his senses? When does he realize he's actually out? When his heavenly guide disappears. Suddenly he's out. He's looking. 13th and Main. And looks at his watch. 1.42. No taxis at this time. How do I get up? How do I get home? Oh, John Mark's mother's place. I've had cappuccino many times there. I'm going to go. He goes four blocks, takes a left, another two blocks. Oh, thank God, the light is on. And, he, and Peter's thinking, Peter's thinking, oh, Peter's mother, you know, John Mark's mother is baking again. So he goes and knocks at the door. Knocks at the gate. What's, what's happening inside? Heavy duty prayer meeting. Man, these guys were praying. And they were knocking. And finally, uh, uh, finally Rhoda, the, the servant girl, the lowest in the totem pole, the person who's supposed to answer doorbells and phone calls, you know, suddenly she realizes, oh, there's somebody knocking. She comes down, she comes down the steps, and she recognizes the Galilean accent of Peter. And she, oh, I can't believe it. Peter's out. She comes back to the prayer group. And guess what? Uh, uh, Peter's out. Shh. You know, Peter's out. Oh, you must have seen a ghost. 
No, Peter is out. Now that you have disturbed the prayer meeting, you might as well open up. Oh, I'm glad for verses uh, 15, uh, 16 and 17, friends. Verses 16 and 17. But Peter continued knocking. Peter continued knocking. But when he had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Look at verse 17, first part. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. You can see the scene. You know, Rhoda opens the door, Peter steps in, and I want to tell you, it was a shock. Because this group of people believed in prayer, but didn't believe in the results of prayer. That's why God sent Peter to this prayer group. And they can't believe it. Look. And the short guy says, let me see. Peter, in Jewish fashion, silences them, and then says, Look at verse 17. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Friends, I want you to know this. What did Peter say? God delivered me. But I'm not going to stay around. Because if I stay around... They come looking for me, and I will enjoy more of Roman hospitality, which I don't like. I'm going to Dixon, Illinois. But I want you to do one thing. Tell all the prayer groups, tell all those who are praying, how God marvelously and miraculously delivered me. Friends, it's important to report back the victories of God. Let me close with three reasons why you need to do that. Number one, so that if the prayer has been answered, so that you can move on. You know, every so often people will come and say, pray for my, my aunt in New Jersey who is going, through, uh, going to go through surgery. Uh, please pray. You know, you don't report back. And people are praying for this aunt in, uh, aunt in New Jersey. But friends, now she's having a love boat experience in the Caribbean. Hey, we need to be changing our prayers. You need to cut it out. So I say, hey, prayers be answered. I can focus on something else. The second reason why you need to report back. Every time you report back the victories of prayer, the answers to prayer, it will strengthen you to be a stronger Christian. It will make you become a stronger Christian not only inside the church, but you will become a stronger Christian to be a witness outside the church. There's a third reason. The third simple reason is when you share the victories of prayer, you're encouraging everybody else to know that God still answers prayer in year 2009. And I need to persevere. I need to keep on because God is a prayer-answering God. Four keys this morning, friends. They were united in prayer. They focused in prayer. They were earnest in their praying. And fourthly, they shared the victories of prayer. Perhaps this morning, as not only part of the campaign, but you want to say, I want to take up this weapon of prayer and start using it in my life. And using it for the advancing the cause of God's agenda for my, myself, my family, and the church. And perhaps you want to make a commitment this morning. So as I, as I pray, before I pray, I'm going to give you a chance to respond in the privacy of your seat. Shall we pray?
Friends, right in the silence, if God's been speaking to you, well, God perhaps has been speaking to you a long time. But friends, you need to take a step and say, I'm going to start using the weapon of prayer to release his power into my life, family, or church, or whatever situation. If you're responding to God, I would like you to lose the privacy of the seat. Just raise your hand and drop it, uh, because I want to close in prayer for you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone? Right in the privacy of the seat. So you and God making this decision, I'm going to take this weapon seriously. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Just put your hand down. Anyone else? Thank you. Father, we want to thank you that you have given this amazing, amazing weapon. We have access to you. Thank you that you gave to us. We don't have to earn it. You gave it to us. We just have to discipline to use it more and more effectively. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have responded this morning because you spoke to them. But Lord, we want to pray for this church as well. As they get into this 50-day campaign, Lord, this church will become a church like the church uh, in Jerusalem that will make prayer, uh, prayer an effective part of their strategy. We pray that you will release uh, answers and victories for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.